It's about the tools we use. It's about the stories we tell. It's about how we change. It's evolution, baby. All right. And I am excited to be joined today by my friend Jay Mutsafi, who I have known probably since 2014 or 2015, which um, we've done some podcasts together before. And, uh, you know, part of why I love talking to Jay about anything tech and transformation and consciousness is it's kind of how we met. <clears throat> we met through Twitter, <laughs> yeah, which is amazing. And uh, in in a very direct way, I have to thank Jay for uh, meeting my wife, who I'm now married to, is uh, directly correlated to I my do, I do love connection that story. to Jay here. Yeah, so 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 amazing. <laughs> and you know, as as I've been kind of vamping back up in the uh, podcasting arena, I was like, ah, who do I want to talk to? And you were one of the first people that came to mind um, because what I've always enjoyed about you is in the way. I just enjoy myself, <laughs> truth be told, is wide view of things in, in the sense of like deep connection to technology, but also philosophy and human behavior and pop culture in some sense, like, uh, you know, media and, and how we interact with it. And I just thought it'd be fun for us to catch up for one because yeah. it's uh, been a little while. And then... Too, how I kind of just wanted to launch things with is just like, what have you been noticing, man? Like, obviously we're in a time of COVID right now. We might go there, but like what's been present in your world or fascinating you or alarming you in, in terms of what you've been seeing and interacting with and just experiencing? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's, it's, I was delighted that for the invite, cause it's, it's always fun talking to you and we don't do it probably often enough. And I think like recording a podcast creates a framework for really getting to interesting things sometimes. So uh, it's, it's, it's great. Well, I think the thing I've noticed the most or the, the concept that comes up to me the most is that everything really feels unpredictable. And, you know, totally, it, it's probably always is to one degree or another. Like, again, we're dealing with complexity all the time and complexity complexity in a way that's um it's just it's just interwoven in in all the layers that we interact with and it's just getting more and more complex but it, you always kind of have the feeling that you know what's going on most of the time uh until you know our timeline gets weirder and weirder <laughs> and now it just like leveled up in its unpredictability and it feels really strange um and, you know, for the first time, I think in a, in a long time, I'm trying more to let go of one, thinking I know what's going to, how things are going to turn out Two, um, work because of that worrying too much about it. Like I, I know <laughs> there's plenty to worry about, but again, if I can't really predict it, so I can't prepare for the worst or, or do something about it, then I might as well let it go. I know it's very stoic, but that's where I've been been at that's that's I, I think it's the it's the really it's kind of the main thing um 
because you also see all the experts, right? Everybody's an expert and it's everybody's, um, you know, everybody's trying to um, say what we should do and how we should move things and where we should go with things and, you know, what's going to happen because of X and Y. I hear a lot of people, right? Like the, the, the optimistic part of me is thinking, wow, we can come out of this with um, a new president, universal basic income, and universal <laughs> healthcare, right? That would be amazing. Um, totally. But who knows? Who knows? What do you think? What about you? No, I love that as a frame. Um, complexity. And I think part of it is realizing how complex things are, yeah. for one, of like, oh, wow, yeah, we really are in... Um, a globalized moment in a way I think few people predicted, or maybe we kind of intrinsically knew, like you said, but then suddenly it's like, holy crap, if China shuts down, I can't get stuff yeah. <laughs> or our businesses fall apart and um, we're way more interwoven than we, than we thought. And that this idea, you know, my, my uh, kind of obsession in the background with uh integral theory is just that, yeah, as consciousness and culture evolve, what that means is more complexity, right? right? There's literally more to the universe. And, you know, one of the great, um, knowings of that then is that the more complex things are, the more that can go wrong in any given moment. And thus the less predictable things are, right? The more parts there are, the more things that can break in any given Yep. component of that. And I think that's kind of, this is, I feel like probably our greatest global, like, oh, shit's broken. And <laughs> we kind of predicted it, you know, people were definitely sounding the bell. Um, but I think this is in, in what's interesting about this moment is it's also an individual embodied experience of like, wow, my life is not the same as it was two months ago. And I think the majority of people on the planet right now are saying that. And I don't know if that's ever happened before. Yeah. I, I'm not at this scale. And especially because we are so connected right now, then we get to experience it together far more than in the past. Um, and, and definitely the scale, right? The worldwide scale of it. And it has kind of exposed a lot of things that we sort of knew, but never really, I mean, it, it really, accentuate things like the interconnectivity. And that's just a word, a fancy word we like to use. But when you suddenly realize the, the interdependency of things, right? So if, um, you know, how much we're dependent on China for production of our goods yeah. and for it to be, you know, cheap and accessible and how much we're actually dependent on the, the food chain and all of those systems that move things around. Um, and it, it really, <laughs> it really kind of, you know, I, I love that the, the, the word was used kind of like essential workers, right? And I think yeah. there's a, a lot of problems around what's going on with that. And, um, you know, I saw this, there's a, an article saying like, you know, um, calling us heroes only makes you feel better. And there's like a lot of backlash of the perspective about it. But the one thing I thought, it nails it is really we now see who are the essential systems that are keeping the economy and civilization kind of up and running. Uh, totally. And that, um, 
in some, I think, surprising ways, it, you know, it correlates with a time where, the, at least politically, we've been having these conversations about wealth inequality and, you know, where the profits of the systems have been going. And I think part of what we're seeing is, wow, the people that are actually like doing the day-to-day grunt work, uh, they're not doing so great. Yeah. And, you know, this is, I feel like a, a kind of, um, microscope on, on that, that, which has been going on. And I think something that, you know, this moment seems to be revealing a lot. Like, I don't know if we've ever had a global, this is probably the close, closest thing we've ever had to a, like literally just a global pause for a breath yeah. of like, Hey, let's just take a breath. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> right. All these systems just organically kind of emerged over the last um, decades. And, you know, the way systems tend to emerge is they're kind of the result of other systems, <laughs> just yep. like evolution in a sense. And what's interesting about this moment to me is it's like a forced pause of, and like you said, you know, possibility of UBI and some pretty drastic restructuring of like, Hey, is this how we want to be doing it? Like, yeah. Do, do we just want to ask that question of like, is this actually how we want it to be working? Cause we just stopped everything for two months. Um, which I think kind of shows us we have a lot more choice than we might've thought about how things are running. And while, you know, there's been an incredible amount of suffering because of that pause, that doesn't mean when we go back to things, we can't go back to something very different. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a forced perspective shift right because um one it 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 shows how these systems are really running on momentum right incentives and momentum and mm-hmm. it's kind of a big autopilot but also because we are embedded in those systems it's really hard to see the bigger picture it's really hard to see all of the aspects of those systems but once we are forced to kind of pause um again after the initial resistance of trying to like hoping and trying to get back to normal, um, we suddenly like stop and say, wait a minute, maybe, maybe a lot of this was not optimal and suddenly discovering some of these aspects that are, that are really good, right? People, one, people spending more time with, with, um, loved ones, but also more people are baking bread for the first time. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I just love it. Um, so it's totally in the, you know, the, the optimist certainly makes me think of like, oh, okay. Like, um, you know, following epidemiologists and tracking things over the last, you know, months, there's the, holy shit, this sucks. And a lot of people died cause we did a pretty shitty job of responding to it. Yeah. Um, but we're kind of lucky it wasn't a lot, lot, lot worse, right? We're lucky that this wasn't something with a 20% yeah. fatality rate, right? And that maybe this was just a warm up, and not just for how to respond to a, you know, a global virus pandemic, but like, wow, our, our, most of our global systems are incredibly fragile. There's not a whole lot of resilience in what's going on right now. You know, I was, th- I was think I was re- I, reading these stories about how some of the the major pork plants have shut down 
and there's nowhere for the pigs to go. So they're going to just have to start slaughtering pigs. Wow. Which is just like, that's not a resilient system that there's no way to distribute that to the many, many people that are, you know, going hungry every night right now. Um, Or that, you know, I think they were talking about migrant farm workers in Germany usually come from Eastern Europe and like no one's showing up. So they don't know who's going to pick all the crops this year. Uh, wow. <laughs> like just these, you know, second order things that are starting to come into a, uh, into effect. And I think will hopefully give us some great uh, pause for, yeah, what would it mean to create some more resilient systems um, to A, not only prepare ourselves for another kind of global problem like this, but B, that you know, in doing them, we'll probably make our bet lives better anyway. Yeah. yeah that's, it's kind of always been my, um, climate change argument <laughs> of <laughs> like, well, maybe it's not human made, but kind of all the shit they want to do, I think would make human quality of life much better. Yeah, absolutely. Right. If, if we got away from cars, uh, or at least got to more EVs and uh, like focused on preserving the environment and cutting greenhouse gas, like, there's just a lot of other things that make that worth doing. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating in terms of and and it feels kind of terrible to say, but I do think we're very lucky in some sense that this happened the way it happened and this particular virus has the the you know attributes that it does that it could have been a lot worse and we really would not have, you know, weathered the storm. And this it's hard not to to think about it in those terms, but it does feel kind of like um, a mild plus, you know, attack on a on a global body, and the immune response mm-hmm. is now responding. So it will be actually a lot more prepared next time around when it's far, far worse. Where if it started as the as the worst case scenario, we would not have survived it as as well. So this was a wake up call in so many respects, not just being prepared for a pandemic, but you know, preparing our systems to be you know, sustainable. People talk about sustainability and they usually think just, you know, energy, let's go solar instead of oil. Um, but it's also just the these systems, right? The food supply and everything else that needs to be sustainable under various conditions, not just the status quo. So uh, hopefully in, in a lot of ways, those will get refined and, and re-examined as well. I actually hadn't thought of, uh, I, I love that metaphor of you know, our global immune system was just challenged in a way yeah. Um, with not too deadly <laughs> a pandemic or uh, a, um, breakdown in systems, but enough that hopefully now we'll have some antibodies and, and sh- it'll come back stronger. I mean, even just the fact, you know, thinking about like, oh, okay, you know, two months from now, pretty much the majority of households will have masks Yeah, just somewhere in a, in a cabinet, right? Yeah. Like ready to go for flu season or if things come back pretty strong this winter, which could drastically change things and that, you know, some new systems I think will be put into place that, um, kind of help us deal with this. I mean, I think the other area, you know, I've been talking with my friend, Michael, who I've been doing a bunch of episodes with about, you know, where the, the confluence of pandemics that a lot of people are speaking to online right now of, yes, there's the actual, um, biological pandemic and it just so happens um, to be coinciding with our information pandemic, yeah, right? Where 
you know, the crazy thing about evolution is, is usually the answer to problems also creates new problems <laughs> and that like we're in this weird thing where like we're having a global pandemic because of globalism and yet at the same time, because of globalism, we have this technological global sphere that's allowing us to stay connected at the same time, but which is also starting to spread, you know, uh, misinformation, insane amounts of misinformation and disinformation and like the erosion of all of our traditional institutions and trust, um, trusted organizations and entities are like the whole thing's just bottomed out. And it's just, you know, it's been the deepest personal practice I've had to be online these like <laughs> last months and not just totally like melt down every time, but like try to stay human to human connected and engage with people and also see like, holy shit, this stuff spreads so fast, yeah. like so, so fast now. And then, you know, tracking the many ways that some of that's organic and then some of it's definitely not organic, <laughs> you know, some yeah. of the stuff being spread um, right now. Very intentionally. Is being very intentionally spread by certain organizations that, you know, have some kind of vested interest in that at, 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 at the worst or, well, or not even at the worst, but we're just trolling on another sense just to cause chaos. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's one of those things that feel, and I've noticed, you know, I've had to really go on. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of those things that can feel very overwhelming, at least for me, because it's one of those things that I have the, the really the instinct and desire, strong desire to, to, to help with somehow and change it. I really view the misinformation and the, the, the okayness with ignorance to be the culprit of everything we're going through, not just the administration, but the pandemic and the response to the pandemic and everything else. It's kind of as if we, we kind of allowed and kind of okayed, um, you know, anti-science sentiment to continue to grow and, and, and take hold, um, yep. politicizing things like science it's, and so on. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, you know, one of my primary teachers is uh, Ken Wilber, and he wrote this book called Boomeritis, which was about kind of a conflict of two levels of consciousness that, you know, he and other developmentalists argue um, are actual structures that emerge. And, you know, very loosely, one is like postmodernism, and one is kind of what he would call warrior consciousness or, or, or power consciousness which is all about the self really the most and that like it's playing out in real time where postmodernism did a really great job of kind of deconstructing everything, science, institutions, hmm. nothing's truer than anything else. Um, everything has a bias. You have to question everything and what that kind of leaves the door open for, which then gets matched with the technology of everyone's a broadcaster now is whatever I'm feeling <laughs> Is true, which is kind of you know, there's a a partial truth in that that my experience is true, yeah. But now we can broadcast that globally, and it's just <laughs> it's just insane how fast it's happening, and that you know it's absolutely personified in our president. 
yeah, it's kind of kind of eerie and remarkable to watch it. And it's, you know, I, I've, I've said many times that it, I almost don't blame him for any of this. It's just his enablers, everyone around him, just allowing this and kind of supporting this because of the incentives that, that, that come out of it for them, right? Control, power, totally. money. Yeah. So, but, you know, it, it, and, you know, one of the things, oh, go ahead. No, 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 go for it. I was just going to totally change topics, but if you have anything to wrap there. No, no, it. no. I, I was about to change topics too. So go for it. Um, you know, one of the things that certainly interests me is uh, how, you know, I've been thinking and feeling into a lot of the deeper order effects of everyone realizing that probably 50% of a lot of jobs can be done remotely. Yep. And that, you know, that in itself, um, for me is not so big a change because a lot of my work's already like that, but for other people, I think has been a, a pretty big shift and that, um, I can't, Im I can't imagine a lot of corporations wouldn't be happy to offload the costs of real estate and offices just back onto employees of like, yeah, you just set up an office at home and you know, all that. Um, but that like, there's going to be a lot of real estate potentially available. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and what's going to be done with all that space, you know, and, and as someone who's always been fascinated and loves the idea of systems and how they influence and can, you know, create better containers for human connection and experience of like, how's that going to change cities? How's that going to change suburbs? And like, wow, what if, what if a lot of these offices became residential housing and maybe that'll solve the housing crisis on the West coast? Like, yeah, I don't know. Is that I possible? Maybe. I mean, let's, let's bring back also like more public space, right. To walk, to bike, to, you know, roam around. If the reduction in the number of cars on the road, because more people are working from home, you know, less pollution and more, more space, less noise, less everything. It's, it's, it can be remarkable and sh cities can change accordingly. Um, so let's, let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> And ha have you, I, I, I'm curious, have you been working remotely? Were you working remotely before? Um, I was working remotely like uh, two days out of the week, which was really cool. Um, and then um, and then we started pretty early, like my, my boss kind of saw what's coming. So we were working, my team was working from home two weeks before everybody else started. Um, and I, you know, you know, I used to be a freelancer, so I'm really used to and, and love working from home. And it's really cool to see everybody else discovering other than the super extroverts <laughs> that, that have a hard time with it. But if you allow people, you know, social interactions, um, outside of work, then, then just doing the work from home won't feel as, as terrible. And they're like, Oh my God, I don't have to commute like 30 minutes to an hour each way. Uh, you're in LA, so it can be even worse yeah. for people. Um, people get more of their time back. People are less stressed because they're less on the road. They can sleep in 30 minutes to an hour. So they sleep better and they feel better. And suddenly it elevates so many things, right? So um, I've been, you know, I've been enjoying it. I've been on one of those and I, I feel super lucky to have a job that I can continue doing from home. And I, I completely am aware of it, of how fortunate I am. Um, and given that, uh, I I really do well uh, from home, and I think also because mm -hmm. concentration and attention, which I would love to talk about attention, um, 
is doesn't come easy to me. I discovered that I have pretty severe ADD that I, you know, attributed like other explanations to it my whole life because I didn't, I didn't want to believe that that's the case. Um, yeah. Then being in an office, an open space office was extremely difficult for me. And uh, I used to just take the laptop and hide anywhere, you know, in different corners of the office because um, I had no choice. And, you know, when I started working from home more of the time, I was like, okay, this would, this was really it. And I might as well work from home if I'm not next to my, my people in the office anyway, because I'm, I'm running and hiding. So it's been good for me for sure. Amazing. Yeah. I, um, I, I'm very curious to see how, how things, you know, go back and what won't go back and what will and what the middle ground will be in terms of like, um, cause I also miss people. Yeah. Like I mostly enjoy working from home and, you know, I'm imagining like, oh yeah, once a week, I think it'd actually be great to just go have all the meetings one day in the office or something and like hang out with people and, and, and connect or something. Yeah. But like, what's gonna, um, how that's going to happen, you know, it even just struck me like how awesome <laughs> talking about inequality, like, um, I, there, there could almost be an argument, you know, in the future as more and more does go to remote that there, there'd almost be an extra incentive to reward people who can't work remotely. <laughs> yeah. Like in the sense of, oh yeah, your job actually requires you leaving your house and going somewhere. Yeah. And that's an inconvenience, right? In a lot of ways in terms of time, um, health, energy, and that, you know, total fantasy probably never happened, but like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if a major corporation took some of that money they're going to save shutting down half right. the real estate and like just paid the people that like actually fucking had to go somewhere yeah. uh, uh, more like it to compensate that. That would, yeah. Who, you know, and crazy idea for the people who can work from home. What if we let people choose, right? Some people do better at home. Some people do better in the office. Maybe some people feel like they, sh you know, a balance for them is three days, in, in two days or the inverse or like one day a week here or one day a week there. Let people like choose if we can do that. And then you are automatically optimizing people for their best work and best productivity because you let that them seems, choose what works the best for them. That seems pretty, pretty smart to me. <laughs> and that, you know, in a lot of ways, the way, you know, uh, video conferencing is becoming so ubiquitous. And it's, I imagine there's just going to be more emerging in terms of the types of connectivity. There's going to be far more of a blur between I'm at home and I'm at work anyway. Yeah. Where, for better or worse. You know, yeah. Like, you know, people can just tune into you at any time or, or whatever that might look like. Um, in that, yeah, you know, the, the funny thing is I worked corporate uh, doing like call center work and a couple other things in my early twenties, early and mid twenties. And I remember the th thing I remember thinking the most is like, wow, you know, 90% of this job is just physically sitting in this chair and having to look like I'm doing something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, when, uh, you know, a lot of the times, most of the work could actually be done like if in 10% of that time. Yeah. Um, and if they told me I only had 10% of that time, I would just do it in 10% of that time. But since I have to be here for eight hours, I'm just going to kind of pad it out, you know? Yeah. Uh, I imagine a lot of that's kind of, um, a lot of that it's, cruft is going to be cleaned out here too of like, oh yeah, okay. You know, it, it's true. Like if you just have a couple power meetings and then get shit done, it doesn't mean <laughs> having to sit in one spot for nine hours. 
Right. And, and who, no one, no one is productive for that many hours in a row, even with drugs, right? Like no one is actually truly uh, uh, producing optimal output. And I think what needs to change in all of this really is the the old corporate thinking, right? Like checking your mm-hmm. clock, you know, looking, be, uh, you know, behind your shoulder, above your shoulder. I think it needs to be like, are you getting your job done? Great. Do it the best way you that is optimal for you. You need like breaks every every 30 minutes, take a break, great. You need to putz around on your phone to clear your head, do that and then come back to work when you're feeling good. And as long as you actually accomplish your work, um, and, and so much research now is showing that um, you are far more productive when you kind of modulate your own focus time rather than oh, this nice. kind of fixed, fixed clock, right? Start now, stop now just makes makes no sense so yeah we'll see yeah more nat- natural cycles of productivity it makes makes tons of sense to me that uh, and everyone's going to work a little bit differently right definitely <sighs> um so yeah tell me a little bit more what you've been discovering about attention well um as as i just mentioned about like the add stuff i've really it really became far more obvious um, just how much attention and focus is so fundamental to everything. It's fundamental to being able to do the things that you want to do to be productive or to be creative. Um, And it's also fundamental to your mood, right? Like Mm -hmm. the inability to focus on what you want to focus or on anything at all, um, it sounds like it's not connected, but for some reason, it's it's a mental agitation that is just producing unpleasantness, like you know, mental unpleasantness. That the only remedy is just being able to rest your mind on something, right? Not even be like I'm not talking about hyper focus. I'm talking about not like you know your mental state kind of like fidgeting nonstop and kind of it's as if everything around you is pinging your um, your consciousness and, but you can't tune it out. So you keep like mm-hmm. bouncing off of these things. Um, and it, it really, it really changes the whole, the whole perspective on, on what is a good balanced kind of uh, baseline of mind should be. Because I, I, I realized this because I had to quit caffeine to improve my sleep. And it was the first time in my life that I was on no stimulants, right? Including, including just caffeine, which is like the basic, most common mm-hmm. stimulant. And I've realized just how, how, you know, unruly my, my mind was, despite, you know, having med- been meditating regularly for 15 years. Uh, yeah. so that, that says a lot. <laughs> um, and so I've re, um, rearranged my efforts to, um, to learn to understand and to improve my my focus and and my ability to concentrate and to keep training my mind using meditation and everything else and um, and to bring back also something that I think I kind of dropped behind because life is you know was an endless run you know um, the rat race kind of a thing for a long time um, uh-huh. creativity doing things for creative purposes right like this podcast totally. or um, creating apps like ideas that I have, not somebody else's um, software. And one of those things has been, you know, I, I, th- I was basically asking myself the question 
there's a good segment by Alan Watts where he asks, what would you do if money was no object, right? And I was yeah. really trying to think, what would that be? And the thing I kept coming back to was philosophy. I don't know why, but it's just, I, I enjoy it tremendously. And so, and, that, and that's why I, I sort of started a, um, I started a philosophy podcast like a year or a year and a half ago. And I did a few, a couple of episodes. And then once again, life took over and, you know, I felt like I'm unable to, to kind of put my focus and effort into it. And having dropped the one main thing that I really truly did just because I like and enjoy it, not because I think it can become, you know, a, a profit mm -hmm. generator or something like that. Um, over time, I look back and I realized that it really affected my enjoyment of life and how I feel just day to day, right? Because otherwise, I'm still waiting for something to happen. I'm waiting for, you know, something to change in life where I can finally like breathe and, and be okay with everything. <laughs> Which is which is a known culprit you can fall into, um, and so I decided to restart the podcast. And I had a I created a little meetup here in Portland um, called the Citizen Philosophy Meetup. Oh, awesome! Yeah, and uh, and and again, the it kind of spells itself out. It's the idea that I wanted philosophy to be similar to citizen science, right? Where you know, you don't have to have a PhD and, and, and all the tools to still participate in science. I wanted philosophy to be a little more approachable where you don't have to know all the terms or quote all the greats, but you're still enjoying it and appreciating it and you can participate in it. So, um, so the, and, and the, um, and the meetup kind of where after I named that, uh, my, my podcast was called, uh, the last turtle podcast. And then I realized that citizen philosophy really encapsulates it much more. So I changed the name of the podcast and kind of relaunched it with, um, with a new episode, which you've, you've listened to the Kirby, uh, the so interview good. with Kirby Ferguson, she's just, he's, she's just incredible. And that's a whole other conversation. That's just awesome to have. Um, but then now I've, I've actually started to reaching out to, uh, people who are interesting, just like Kirby, but also philosophers, right. Actual like PhD philosophers and kind of bridge, bridge that gap. I've uh, I've just reached out to this woman who um Olivia who is a her focus is the philosophy of time travel which I'm just like wow it's 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 just two of my favorite things philosophy and time travel so I I can't wait to have that discussion but it's <laughs> totally <laughs> as as soon as I dive back into this despite all the anxiety and and kind of this trepidation around doing these creative things I instantly feel like, yes, I need to do more of that. So my attention not only refocused on attention itself, but also on the component of it that is dedicated to creativity. So yeah, that's been, that's been a strong lead. I love that. I think, yeah, there's, there's so much there I totally resonate with. And, um, you know, particularly the first thing you talked about in terms of like attention and the, how, um, much agency it can take now to just rest our attention on one thing mm -hmm. and like execute in some sense and how there's just more and more, particularly for the, those of us that, you know, kind of live digitally online, like constantly pulling at our attention and that, you know, everything is oriented towards the short term <laughs> and online and instant in that I definitely have noticed that has, you know, an effect on my physiology and like, yeah. um, how comfortable it is for me to sit down and just read a book 
You know, yeah. like it's 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 a different experience than when I was little. I have to like bring something else to it now. And it just reminds me of, you know, I think one of the interesting moments we're in is that, you know, certainly when I kind of got started in the transformational world back in the day, it was like, oh yeah, mindfulness is this cool thing you do for spiritual growth and, you know, for people that are seeking enlightenment and and it's like, no, actually I think this is probably the primary new skill that is going to determine your ability to be a successful participant in the emerging like world is your ability to focus on something. And, you know, as we're even just talking about before, like as a lot of traditional structures break down, right. You have to be here at this time you start and then you stop and you can take breaks now, um, which is actually quite, you know, confining in some ways, but it also gives us structure right? Yeah. Like meaning, you know, one of the challenges I certainly have as a freelancer sometimes is like, well, I can work all the time. (laughs) Like the day doesn't end. You know, I have to like consciously choose, okay, I need to go hang out with my daughter now, even though I have 20 things due or that I want to be done. Um, But the ability to like self-create structure and focus, I feel like a, that should be 100% the thing we're teaching kids like screw learning facts and stuff. It's like, yeah. can you put your focus on something and stay with it? Yeah. And then can you help, can you create structures to help you do that <laughs> in your life? Right. Like how does your environment need to be set up? Um, who do you need to help, you know, get yeah. in contact with to help you do that? And um, I've, I've realized, so I've realized a few more things in this whole process of examination and kind of trying to understand, you know, my brain and my system and how it works. And especially the kind of, as I shift around trying different things, um, one I've realized, I, I think it is exactly like reading a book and having such a hard time getting through a single page is when it really hit me of just how, how deteriorated, like my ability to do that was because I found you found yourself kind of defaulting to more passive, um, things like, right. You can turn on the TV and it's easy. Um, yes. And then I wondered many times, which have been confirmed repeatedly, that are sort of, you know, endlessly scrolling through social media and, and really wearing out our dopamine system um, has made it has, has made these this kind of ability worse, I believe. And um, and once I kind of try to just reduce the quantity of social media that I consume, it improved a little bit. But it also you know, I think the, the, the bottom, when I hit rock bottom, so to speak, is when I was watching TV in a show that I usually like. And as soon as something was kind of seen was kind of boring, I suddenly see that I'm, I have my phone in my hand and I'm scrolling through social media and I'm like, what is this? I was watching, like, why do I need to do both? This is kind of ridiculous. Um, and it, and it's this little addiction to little dopamine hits. And, (laughs) and so that's when I started trying to shift my focus. But the other thing I discovered, which um, which was interesting to me, and I'm curious what you think about it, is my whole life I've heard this this phrase, you know, don't don't wait until you have motivations in order to do something, because then you'll rarely do it and you'll not achieve this, that, or the other thing. And it it, it kind of makes sense, right? Like I, I totally understand it, and there is something true about it. But what I think is not clear for a lot of people. And especially people, again, I'm not trying to make excuses. In fact, I've avoided 
trying to make this quote unquote excuse for, you know, 20 years, like most of my adult life <laughs> is that some people who are at a deficit, whether it's because they were born with it or, you know, some, you know, their neurochemistry, or maybe because they were too much on social media and their brain got rewired or whatever it is. I've realized that motivation is not like a zero and plus kind of a spectrum. I've realized that it's actually, um, you know, z- there is like minus to the spectrum and plus to the spectrum, including the the kind of zero center. And there are people who are, you know, it's not that they need to just wait, uh, not wait until they have motivation because they're they're at a level scale and they can just take action. There are people for whom to take action is a Herculean effort. They have inertia. Not only that they don't have momentum, but they have inertia. And the way I, I suddenly realized that it is, is that think about like a, just the ground, the leveled ground, right? And, you know, with no motivation, you just have to take, you have to start walking to move. If it's downhill and you have motivation, you have the wind on your back and, and gravity, you, it, it's hard to stop yourself, right? You're just like going forward. But if you are going uphill, you have to really, really make an effort to start moving and to continue to move. And I think that is something where people are kind of guilted by this, like, don't wait for motivation, um, that is actually detrimental because they have to find the mechanisms to elevate themselves up to a level playing field to really kind of start going. And they they might have to put an effort to get there, right? But I wanted to, I wanted to spread the word sort of and, and try to remove this um, productivity madness and guilt tripping of like, you know, if you haven't achieved something, it's because you're lazy or you're making excuses or something like that. Like we forget that everything we do and everything we are, it sits on this complex system that has a lot of nuances that is affected by so many things, your brain chemistry, your body chemistry, your mind, your psyche. And, um, and it's not that, it's not that simple. And I, I really, once, once I found the things that can bring me, just elevate me up to the baseline is when I realized that I was at a deficit to begin with. And I think that's very important to understand. Oh, totally. I, I mean, the, yeah, there's so much that I get fired up on about the, <laughs> this kind of subject is, you know, part of a lot of what I still do is, um, you know, I coach men and I do men's work and this is a big thing, right? Uh, motivation and do creating the things we want to create and that, you know, it actually ties in, um, there's a couple of places I want to go with this, but one, it just ties into what you were sharing before about like what even inspired you to recreate your podcast and to start doing that again, that, um, you know, a lot of what I have learned in, you know, one of my current teachers, you know, basically breaks everything down to like, life is just energy management. Yeah. We're in a high energy state, really easy to create when you're in a low energy state, it's like impossible. Yeah. And so what, do you need to do in your life to create energy for yourself? And, you know, there's different things for different people. Like I, in my, my own way, I've kind of been on a journey and totally, you know, uh, working out creates energy for me, for me, going to a movie theater, sitting in the dark, yeah. with nothing else to do in an air conditioner. Like I, that actually creates a lot of energy for me. I come out of movies and like my mind is stimulated. I feel oh, yeah. rested. You know, it's, it's one way I actually take care of myself. Um, and that creation itself, I think for a lot of people making art 
um, can be that, right? Like, and I don't, I mean the type of art, like you're talking about, like, this is something I just enjoy doing Yeah. and that when I'm done doing it, like whether or not it goes anywhere, becomes anything, it doesn't matter. It's just something about the process of doing it and creating it gives me energy. Like, right. It like yeah. unlocks something. There, there are, there are so many, you know, so few things these days that we do just for their own sake. Yes. Yeah. I think that's- and, and I just have to agree, by the way, I just have to say this coming out of a movie theater after having watched a really good movie is a particular, very, very particular unparalleled type of experience. And I freaking love it. And I miss it so much. It is unique. It is, it has its own signature and it's like nothing else. And I, ah, oh, I love it. I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm scared about what, you know, this pandemic certainly going to do for the film going experience. Oh, yeah. um, but that, you know, for cinephiles and certain people, that's always, that's going to be an experience that's always available to us to, to, to some extent, yeah. but that, yeah, you know, learning what those things are that create energy is super important. And, you know, I see this, th- this tension between like motivation and, um, what I would call like motivation and, you know, in some sense, the circumstances of your life and how that impacts your energy, mm-hmm. you know, to me, that's like, and to a lot of people that have written about this, you know, that's one of the central divides between the left and the right in our country, where the right is all about, it's all individual responsibility. It's up to you to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And the left's <laughs> like, well, no, actually it has a lot more to do with the conditions you were born into and in your environment. Right. And that there's, they're both true, right. You know, in the integral sense, they're, they're both totally true, but right. I have absolutely found for myself and for many of the men I've coached, um, and I think this is very strong for the masculine in general. Yeah, there is this kind of like drive that I have to be building or creating or living my purpose or doing something, and then I'm so exhausted I can't do it. You know, I'm like it's it's literally like pulling teeth. Yeah, and that uh, so many, and then that in itself becomes a way we beat ourselves up, <laughs> right? And then which takes even more energy away um, from ourselves in that what I've seen happen time and time again is when we focus on nourishment, like, oh, actually just rest, nourish yourself, sleep in, do nothing, which is an incredibly important practice. One of my teachers taught me of like, it's so healing to literally schedule out time and do nothing. I'm going to go sit in a chair in the backyard for an hour and do nothing. Not going to meditate, not going to check my phone, I'm just going to do nothing or get into nature and, or whatever that might be. Yeah. I I think, um, energy management is such a great concept. It's such a useful, um, perspective. And it makes me think about like, if you talk to almost any strong introvert, right? People with really like high intensity introversion, um, almost, you'll almost hear most of them using language like my social tanks are empty and I need to recharge them. And that is something I learned from my really good friend, Heidi. And that's the first time I heard such a phrase, but she brilliantly, of course, took it to beyond the social tanks and suddenly spotted it in different areas as well, like in the motivation or creativity or energy to do things or deal with specific things. And so it's all kind of energy management. Um, 
So that is that is really important to understand. And I think it can be really useful to just even notice and calibrate accordingly. Um, yeah. And, yeah. By- and then, it, and then it's, it becomes this, it's a shift, right? Then instead of like, well, I have to create strategies to like set goals for myself and like, there's a, there's a way to approach getting things done like that. Or there's, oh, what I need to do is create structures in my life. So I'm spending time every week doing things that bring me energy. Yeah. Like, like that's what's worked for me. And then in a high energy state, I'm just way more naturally creative. Yeah. Like, oh, I have an idea to start writing this thing or I'm going to go podcast or I'm just going to go fucking do this thing. And, and then it just kind of comes out. Um, and Here, yeah. Yeah. Here, here's an example that I've noticed uh, for me, a particular example that I, as, as soon as I realized that I was like, I can't believe I, I didn't notice this until now is that my, I have it really feels like, and I think there's some support for this uh, on scientifically, that my decision-making fuel, you know, is very like, I have a limited capacity. And so when I have, when I have tasks um, that really require coming up with things, right? Not stuff, not just stuff that I have to do, that I know how to do, I know exactly what to do, and I just need to do it. When I have to be, you know, partially creative, or at least creative in a sense that I have to to make choices about, you know, if I'm programming something, how do I build the database for this, and so on and so forth. Um, then it it is far better for me to start the day with the things that are easier that I know exactly how to do, and only spend um, the decision making things later. And even more importantly, I should never um, search and research something that I want to buy before I do the harder tasks, because that like, you know, searching for me for the best, uh, whatever vacuum cleaner on the <laughs> wire cutter and Amazon can just completely deplete it. And then I can't actually do the things that I really wanted to do that were far more important. So that's, oh, totally. I, I the, it, and this is like the creative creatives battle. You know, I, I imagine you've read, if you haven't, you totally should the war of art and just the whole practice of how important that creative energy is and that yeah you know the the famous story obviously of um steve jobs and always wearing the same shirt and yeah people that just order the same lunch you know in in hollywood all the time because it's like yeah i just don't want to make that choice yeah like actually the elimination of unnecessary choices is is very very useful because then it does take like a lot of mental bandwidth um (laughs) to be creative right or to solve a problem you know, right. I think that's a, which is a type of creativity of, right. Or, exactly. or to structure, you know, when I'm writing something or editing something, uh, like it's like, okay, here's a, th- there's a thousand different directions this could go. And the mental energy is how am I going to organize and bring coherence to this information? Right. And that takes like, I imagine with you and code sometimes, like it takes a lot. Yeah. I am oh my God. wicked depleted afterwards. Definitely. And that's, knowing that, you know, becomes uh, super important for, okay, yeah, like which are the tasks I need to focus on first? Like, you know, I did, I, I shot um, my web series last year that I'm finally almost done in post-production with, but the only way I was able to do that was it had to be the, I had to spend an hour first thing every day writing. Cause if I, if I didn't do it first, yeah, if I literally, if I checked my email first, Ugh. then my part-time jobs or things would come in that would just suck me in. Yeah. And once I had gone into there, all that energy would be gone. Yeah. So I had to like first thing in the day and then I couldn't do it alone. So I literally had to create 
uh, a Zoom group with some writers and we all committed to being on Zoom at the same time we wrote. Yeah. So there was some social accountability and that it worked, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I had to do all of those things. Um, Accountability is a really good tool for these things. Um, um, I I also... Energy management. Yeah. And and, um, another example, when I used to drink caffeine, right? I'm just drinking decaf because I still love coffee. But um, there was like this period of like 30 minutes to an hour and a half, you know, 15 minutes after I started drinking that I really got, you know, this uh, somewhat energy and optimism, right? Like I I used to call caffeine liquid optimism because that was such a distinct effect, at least on me. So I knew that if I wanted to accomplish particular things that I could really utilize that time for, I shouldn't drink my coffee and putts on social media. I should drink my coffee and like do something that I really could use that energy for that is as precious and, you know. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. That, totally. And that, again, I think being aware of like energy management and mindfulness and all these things, like that's the new skill set, man. <laughs> that it's not like a need to know, uh, but it's going to be required like a, a requirement for just right. moving through this incre- increasingly chaotic um, systems and world. And that, and you know, the, the last thing I just wanted to point out that um, I hear you speaking to, that goes back to just how in my, my mind, art and creativity, there's something generative about them that, you know, when I'm creating good art, I might be like tired, but you're fulfilled. Since it actually brings me more fulfillment and energy, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's a different kind of depletion, I guess you could say, uh, in that it's generative in that, um, you know, one of the reasons I decided to start podcasting again, as soon as like COVID took off was I was like, holy shit, when there's, you know, it's so easy to consume now. It's just so easy to constantly be in that consumption mode. Yeah. And, and, uh, modernity has like bombarded us with, just too many choices for too many things. And we have left the sweet spot of like, um, you know, how, how many choices are like, you know, useful and helpful and beneficial and just like went off the charts to like, everything is paralyzing and it's just like energy sucking and everything. You have to make a choice about literally every single thing, like micro choices all day. Um, from, you know, buying things to just, you know, choosing what kind of a uh, frappuccino you want or whatever. Um, yes. yeah. I, uh, it's exhausting and it's, you know, it's actually one of, it's one of my criticisms of kind of more libertarian uh, choices. Everything thinking is like, actually it's, it's an Im- immense cognitive drain to actually have to choose everything. Yeah. Like, and, and it takes an, an insane amount of energy privilege, actually, yeah. in some sense, to be able to research things and get the best thing and, and choose this and choose that. And, um, and yeah, I, and, I, and back to the creativity part, I think I agree about the different types of energy and kind of something gets filled back up because it's it's almost kind of like working out where afterwards I'm exhausted. But if I worked out today, tomorrow I will have more energy. Yes, and, that's a great way to think of it. Yeah. And it's very similar with, with doing something creative. Like I I feel in some ways drained afterwards, but I have a renewed like oomph to continue to, to create. And, and the longer I live it, the longer I, I, I put it down and, and don't come back to it. And then once I come back to it, if two weeks have passed, let alone like if months have passed, it is so hard to pick up. It's just, it's, it's inertia at that point. 
a hundred hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> and just keeping it keeping it going has always been um my challenge yeah. with these things. But but learning that, okay, you know, actually taking time to create something, uh, even when it's not tied to my livelihood, that is self-care. You know, that's one of the big things I've I've really woken up to. It's like, oh, that is actually how I take care of myself. I like you, it's like, I actually just really love talking about philosophy and stuff. It like stimulates some positive energy in my brain, which then radiates out into the other things that I'm doing. Yeah. So let me- That's reason enough to do it. Absolutely. Um, and and we kind of almost forgot we got into this. And again, this is one of the, I'm not one of the people who hate capitalism. I think it has done a lot of good and I think we should keep much of it, but not all of it. Um and but it but it got everybody in the sort of Western world, I think, and, and beyond in this frenzy of having to continue to achieve and accomplish and do. And it came at the expense of, you know, enjoying life in some more fundamental sense and um, you know, letting the brain rest and our our our, you know, uh goal-oriented mind rest and recalibrate and and gain perspective. And that's been very detrimental. Um, but uh, but there's another thing that came to mind if we're, if we're talking about philosophy and, and um, self-care is uh, I can't just stuck in my head the phrase you said earlier about like pick, you know lifting yourself off from your own bootstrap, which is used to say you should you know you should you know stand up yourself and take care of yourself and you know I don't I, I shouldn't help you or, or do things for you. Um, I always found that so ridiculous because that phrase literally describes the impossible. Like you can't lift yourself up from your bootstrap. <laughs> you have no, you have no, uh, no way to do it. Right? You need something. To, it's just it's so funny that nobody <laughs> nobody pays ten, attention to that. Um, and um, <laughs> and that's and that's the thing that comes back to me that I think it's as if we almost forgot why collectively civilization and humanity has decided to pull resource together in, in order to create a system better for all of us because we can yes. we can do it together and when people now in government and elsewhere are like yes but i don't i don't want people to um live off of my taxpayer dollars or something like that even if you look at it selfishly which i don't understand why they don't see it right you don't want to give people universal health care but when there's a pandemic if you gave them the universal healthcare, there is less chance for you to get sick. This is you can you can be altruistically selfish, which is great. Go for it. And the same with um, crime and violence, right? If you give people universal basic income, if you if you create a safety net and and lift the bottom, you don't have to cap the top even. But let's let's say you just lift the bottom. People are less less likely to commit crime. Your neighborhood is safer. It's exactly what you wanted to begin with, right? But it's just shooting yourself in the foot by thinking that everybody can and should and needs to take care of themselves exclusively. That is an illusion. It doesn't exist. Not in civilized society. Totally not. And that you know, that's been <clears throat> I've been having some conversations with some. Uh, I had a, did an episode with a libertarian friend of mine, which was challenging in some <laughs> good ways for me, I'm like getting the the healthy parts of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and for me to, yeah, like there is a lot of great stuff about that. And just for me, it's this immediate obvious thing of like, yeah, free market capitalism, 
um, that's where we generate enough abundance, you know, that we can then scrape off the top to set a certain floor, right? right? So there's a, a bottom that no one can drop down below, which then actually accelerates everyone going up more, <laughs> which creates more abundance at the top. Uh, and seriously, the, <laughs> the structural version of what you're, what we were talking about between, um, you know, motivation and nourishment in some sense, you know, where I certainly feel the experience that when I'm nourished, it's easier for me to be creative and productive and get stuff done. And that we missed, we've missed that piece, particularly in America. I think, you know, yeah. Europe's always been a little bit better than that, but even they're starting to feel the pressure now of, you know, but still they have vacations, they have time off work. Isn't everything. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, on general they're, they tend to be a happier, happier population, but you know, that's one of the many hopes I could see right now, right. is coming out of this is okay. What if we did do both? You know, and this would be the dream, I think, of something like a, a UBI of, you know, if they're, <clears throat> if you took off the table, wow, no one should have to v worry about basic survival needs. Right. Right. Just right. They're, they're, no one can live worse than this. Doesn't mean they can live any better than that, though. Right. Yeah. You might get super teeny apartment, very basic food, but you're not going to die. And if you just want to spend your time sitting around living off that check, great but there's not much available for you past that. Um, but when you take out that stressor, right, it's easier to take chances in yeah. life because yeah. you know, you have something to fall back on. This is the, I can't remember where I saw this study, but you know, this is part of the, the kind of rich boy effect of <laughs> grown up in a, a strong family and family has a lot of wealth and kids created a billion dollar company by the time he's 25 or something, you know, because uh, he just went out and he started creating and doing stuff. Um, and wasn't worried about certain basics. They had the bandwidth needs. and the resources and the freedom and the mental freedom to do these things. And totally in that, yeah, you, you know, just agreed that, you know, let's do a UBI or something. I actually think it would unleash a tremendous amount oh my God. of creativity, not for everyone, right? There would be some people who choose not to participate right. and do choose to just sit back and live the minimal right. life. But there would be a lot of people, I would argue, who would take riskier chances, create new endeavors, and in the end, generate so much new abundance that everybody would do better. And it, it just seems like such an obvious <laughs> thing to me. Like when, we're, uh, when we feel whole and nourished and resilient and not in a state of stress, you know, which is part of what so many of us are dealing with, like uh, phone stress, dopamine stress, societal stress, like we don't tend to go into parasympathetic very often in our culture. Right. You know, people can go weeks, months, and years. Like literally, I've, I've worked with people who have not dropped into that state in their body in a long time. And that has major consequences on your ability to focus, get shit done, be creative, feel safe in the world. But yeah, man, I'm like just so on the same page as you of like, we, as we realize these things, like there's some certain structural shifts we can make that I think would support this on the individual level and that would actually ultimately make capitalism even more efficient. Absolutely. I think it's, um, I mean, yeah, like, like you, I feel that it's kind of almost too, it's so obvious, um, but it's, it's more ideology that it is kind of resisting that than anything else. And it's and it's setting up a system where more people more easily can 
can return to being like a full spectrum human of sorts, yeah. right? When, when, when things are no longer kind of turned off just because of your situation and your environment, you can function a lot better. You can do a lot more. People will be happier. Um, and people will now direct themselves in better, more things that are more suitable for them. And then we can actually um, really wo- reward people for the hardest jobs, right? So people mm-hmm. who, who do really risk their lives in their jobs or do just a lot of manual labor, um, for people to want to do that, now you will have to really compensate them. And everything we can, as soon as we can, let's do the, let's let the robots do them, right? That's just, just, let's not risk people's lives and, and livelihood in that way. And it's, uh, I've always think about it, like, I, I hate the um, discussion, this kind of fake debate between um, capitalism and socialism, right? It's not either or, in fact, like whatever evolves would be some kind of hybrid plus other elements. And nobody's telling people they can't become millionaires and, and get rich. Maybe we do, you know, figure out that we should cap, um, you know, income at some level, like, you know, half a trillion dollar or something. Maybe, maybe not, because it comes with also power. Uh, it's not just resources and not just money straight up. Um, but people can get like, nobody needs a, tr- a, qu- a quarter of a, a half a trillion dollars, right? Nobody needs that. Um can't spend it. No, literally. No, it's, that's the thing. That's what I always argue is like, if 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 part part of the free market is like maximizing choice and freedom um, and liberty, like when one person's sitting on that much liberty, financial spending power, it's it's like a huge amount of wasted bandwidth. Whereas if you redistribute that, that's immediately going to go into the economy in such different ways and relocalize it too. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so I think it'd just be healthy for the system. Again, just going to be healthier for the system overall. And yeah, some kind of hybrid, I think, I think it is emerging and, um, you know, I think it's going to be, I think it's something we're figuring out to some extent at an individual level right now of like, yeah, how do I, <laughs> how do I create, create without killing myself, you know? And then, right. okay, how do we do that as a society? How do we still remain productive and creative while also being nourished and rested and willing and living like a, a well-lived, enjoyable life, which isn't just about work. You know, that's one of the things that's driving me nuts about the reopen the economy thing. Work, 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 work. <laughs> like, fuck, man. Like, it's not about just work. Like, I, I get we need to take care of some people, but what if we just took care of them for another three weeks and then, you know, decided what we wanted to do next as a society? Yeah. And and I think this goes back to, again, the idea of, you know, why, why even, you know, collect our resources together in our, not just like monetary resources, but just like manpower and brain power in governments and institutions and systems is because that individuals can't, can't be solely responsible for solving many of these problems, right? So if you if you solely rely on people's random generosity to to donate to charities and everything else to you know get rid of malaria or you know help solve the you know the problem of, of homelessness and get everybody like situated and, and out of the streets and so on, um, it's never going to happen. Like no matter how many you know people in the street I give money to or no money how, how much how much charity I will contribute to. 
um, unless you collectively like say, okay, we want to solve this problem. If, if individuals have to think about and try to figure out how to solve all their problems themselves, it's just never going to happen. One, there's too many problems. What, what should I donate to and how much should I donate? Right. Mm-hmm. It's like the effective altruism, like concept and so on. And if you have to rely on Bill Gates, right. To fund vaccine, um, you know, research, that is a dangerous proposition because it, you know, we're lucky to have him with all, you know, he's, he's, you know, not perfect, but, um, I think he doesn't have to be doing any of it. Yeah. He doesn't have to, right. And he doesn't have to like the amount of stuff that he's, he's done for malaria and to prepare for this pandemic. And, and now during the pandemic, uh, to try to help and, and solve it is, is tremendous, but all of this could have been done and been, have been done better when we we would have done it like the big collective, right? Like not just this one person that uses his resources to get get the system moving and, and doing something, but you know, as a government and let alone as a as a as a as a global society, right? If we when 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 countries come to this is one of the amazing things about this. It forced us kind of to work together globally, where everybody is focused on solving one problem. It is remarkable what we can achieve. So I think, I think we need to go back to that type of thinking because there are problems that we can only solve at that scale. And once, once people actually know that these problems are being addressed at a larger scale, at the higher level, they can then relax of like stressing about all the problems in the world, right? Yeah. And then they can actually focus on their micro system around them, right? Their life, their family, their community, their city. And then you get that focus more locally and the stress comes off and people are more creative. They are able to do things better. And that really changes the system kind of bottom up and top down together. I think that's, yeah, that's the thing. Bottom up and top down. Um, You know, I always think of (laughs) as a guy who grew up on video games, I was like, imagine playing an RTS where you had no overall point of view. Right. Like, there's a reason someone has the point of view so they can help direct and, you know, allocate that. You get information from the individuals and you create like a master plan and execute on that. Yeah. And I just think it's important that that information flows both ways and that, um, you know, in terms of the top down, ideally someone's holding a vision and asking the question, what do we want and why do we want it? how do we want to live? You know, I think that's one of the missing pieces right, right now that we're, we really don't have is, you know, it's been driving me nuts is no one's like really been putting out a vision. There's no vision. Yeah. For, yeah. For us to unite. So I was railing on that the first couple weeks of COVID of like, why aren't they speaking to some kind of moonshot? Like unify America on like, yeah, let's fucking be the best. Let's be the ones that create such an effective test we can export it to every country in the world like let's do it like we can do this private sector public sector like let's get together let's create a vision let's be the best yeah just, no one's doing it right we, we, we've lost total that breakdown yeah and i think and i think we really have to find a way and i have no no clue how to do this i've been thinking about this a lot we need to dismantle the ability to pretend right this mm-hmm. this whole like to talk and like double speak and pretense as if you actually care and as if you're doing it for good reasons, like in, in politics and in government. Um, 
this whole charade, right? It's just detrimental to a, to a scale that is unbelievable. And, and somewhere we have lost the way to, you know, for somebody, if somebody does stuff like that, or somebody lies, right? <laughs> um, for, for that to have a reputation cost, that needs to come back somehow. And I have no way, no, no idea how to get back to that. There's, yeah, the, I just recorded another episode with a friend and we were talking about that of how there is no reputation cost for anything right now uh, in information sharing and, and so much that makes it really hard um, for good things to happen, <laughs> right. I guess you could say. But that, yeah, like requiring that and uh, de- demanding that right. I think is something that's going to be important. And, you know, what does that mean? How do people rehabilitate and, you know, um, overall, but that that's going to be such a, a key thing to forging this new path forward. Yeah. The only thing I could come up with so far is that we have to start using the tools that we already have, right? And there aren't many Mm. of those. And we have to, what we have to attack is we have to attack the incentive component, right? So for example, um, there are, there's a entity called Sleeping Giants, which are basically organizing people to, um, to, to make noise at the advertiser's of people in media who are really doing, you know, terrible things, right? And and kind of harming the public by spewing nonsense and so on. So that's one example. And then again, it, it's attacking money. The other one is using the legal system. So if even the president or Fox News or anybody else is putting out information, especially knowingly, right? But But regardless, putting out information that is actually costing lives and harming people, you can sue them and we need to collectively sue the heck out of Fox News until it's unbearable to, for them to exist or to continue to lie on camera nonstop. And this is just one of the few tools, remaining tools that we have that you can't lie and harm people um, you know, knowingly and, and, and you know, even if your intention is not to harm people and to, but to gain another goal, your incentives here are, are completely off whack and that is one of the that one of the things that we have to kind of bring back. And the the last one, um, I think I tweeted about it um, yesterday. I saw Seth um, Seth MacFarlane um, sort of speak publicly suddenly against Oprah, saying that she needs to stop, you know, promoting pseudoscience like Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz, which is just atrocious because she has a giant giant audience. And this mm-hmm. is again the anti-science dumbing down of America, and it is problematic. And it's, it, you know, we've let it, we've let it be in the name of like, oh, it's just entertainment, right? As if that excuse is okay. And we've stripped them. Some of them have lost their, their, you know, their doctor title, right? And they are still allowed to, to come online and and spew bullshit in, in this pretense, as long as they do it, like skirting the lines, so to speak. Right. But it's Mm -hmm. the people who are putting them on TV that needs to be tackled. And we need to actually address these kinds of things. And it takes, unfortunately, because that's where we're at in like celebrity culture, it takes people with an audience and a, and a wide reach and a voice to start speaking out against these things and not just let them be okay. I think totally changing the incentive structure of yep. um, the attention economy, I think is one we're all realizing right now. Mm-hmm. Things are based on ad revenue that that optimizes for certain things, right? I, I yeah. was posting about this the other day that uh, right now, you know, most of the social web is optimized for contrarianism. 
Yeah. Those who generate reactivity and outrage. So, you know, there's a whole crop of YouTubers and Instagrammers who capture attention by just being contrarian to whatever the mainstream narrative is. Uh, right. And it's in their vested interest to be that. It's super effective. click on contrarian things, even if they, they either click on it because they agree with it or they click on it because they disagree with it. Right? <laughs> so it like it generates a certain type of, you know, that's optimizing for something yeah. that um, and, and there's, we there's been choices about. Yeah. There's been even research about it in like the example of Facebook. And the conclusion was sort of that Facebook optimizes for outrage. And, and YouTube kind of does the same. So that falls in line. The, the I, contrarianism I falls in line. With in the, the titles, uh, you know, of YouTube videos and yeah. stuff all the time, clickbaity headlines. And, you know, people have been sending me a lot of things. And I've just been pushing back of like, hey, do you notice what words they're using in the title? And why do you think that is? Um, you know, just starting to point out some of the uh, biases of these systems and what they're optimizing to. And that uh, we definitely have to have some pretty big conversations about that. And that, you know, the other thing I think these systems in our media attention economy kind of optimized to is our desire for simple answers. Yeah. Oh my God. And that, so people like Dr. Phil or Dr. Ott, you know, they, they kind of have simple answers to things a lot of times when like to kind of tie it all together, you know, what we talked about in the beginning was we're in an ever more increasingly complex time where there's, there's not really simple answers to things. Yeah. There's trade-offs, there's complexity. There's as soon as you fix one thing, you're going to break a whole bunch of other things and unexpected consequences are going to happen. So we need to be very agile. We need to be aware that that's going to happen, but that, you know, what doesn't get a lot of attention right now online is the more gray area stuff of actually, there's not a simple answer. This is kind of true. And this is kind of true. And we don't know yet. <laughs> you know, I think that's a big one too. The internet has optimized us for instant. We're used to everything being instantly gratifiable and given to us. Whereas, you know, science is something that takes time. Yeah. And I see that, you know, there's a conflict right now uh, around that, particularly with COVID of actually everyone wants to know everything. So articles and stuff are put out super fast. Yeah. And then two weeks later, the truth is different because more information has come in. And actually it's going to be a little while before we really know. So what's the best way to take care of the most people while we don't know is the real question, right? Not ultimately what's the fatality rate yeah. kind of stuff. It's in the, the, in the meantime, while we're collecting this data, how do we take care of people? And then we'll eventually have some good information we can make future policy decisions from. Yeah. And part of the problem with the incentive structures and the short form media that everybody's consuming is that um, we've we've left no room for nuance when the answer to most questions is it's complicated. And that's a totally. problem. <laughs> and it, it can't necessarily be fixed tomorrow. You know, the, the last thing I'll, I'll kind of share and then then we can start to wrap as I've started listening to, uh, you know, I, I think a man you and I both resonate a lot with in a lot of ways is Kevin Kelly and kind of got back on the long now mm -hmm. um, yeah. bandwagon of these, like this whole idea of, you know, thinking more longer term and making decisions from that place again, which uh, is, you know, at that systemic level, I think the same thing we're having to practice as individuals when everything is orienting us towards our attention in this moment, this moment, this moment, you know, to decide to carve out some time, 
uh, or to restructure my life so I can work on a podcast. You know, why? Oh, because longer term, I want certain things to happen, right? There's like a different rhythm. Um, yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have to really work to tune back into as a, as a collective and as a um, planet. Yeah, it's quite quite a challenge ahead. But again, maybe by some crazy miracle, this whole situation would allow a lot more people to slow down and expand their perspective maybe. Yes. <laughs> I think that's the best we could hope for yeah. um, in terms of the many, many possible positives we could get out of this to balance out the many, many um, negative impacts it's going to have is okay. You know what we, uh, what do we want is the, you know, a question I think, and why do we want it that we get to ask right now, as opposed to just, um, you know, that uh, there's just the difference between responding and, and reacting, yeah. right? Mindfulness is taking the pause choose to respond instead of just reacting. And I think we're hit, we've hit that in this global moment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, awesome, man. Thank you uh, for joining me. It was so fun to catch up with uh, wide, yeah. wide ranging conversation. Lots of fun stuff. We, we, we checked out here and where is the best place for people to check out uh, your podcast? Yeah. So citizenphilosophy.com. And uh, if you're interested in my lucid dreaming stuff, it's the lucid dreaming podcast.com or lucid dreaming podcast.com. And I'm on Twitter at jmutzafi. It's J-A-Y-M-U-T-Z-A-F-I. Say hi. Awesome. Yeah. Definitely check out his stuff. Uh, he, he, he's an amazing creative. <laughs> Thanks. It's been, it, this has been a pleasure, like as always, and uh, we should, we should do it more often. So thanks, totally. thanks for uh, thanks for pinging me about this. It's great. My pleasure, brother. All right, talk to you soon. Special shout out and thanks to Screaming Witness for the amazing intro and outro song. Check them out.